Chapter Tactics. This is your Warhammer 40k podcast that focuses on playing Warhammer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, Mr. Petey Pob, and with me, I have my two wonderful co-hosts, Skari from Skardcast. Hello, everyone, and for all of you who are watching our faces, hello! Sean, abuse puppy Morgan. Is this guy? And then you can't see them. They're little ghosts in the background in the warp. Uh, the patrons watching live. This is the first ever Chapter Tactics episode streamed live. Nice. And like an idiot, I forgot to hit the start recording button. Hooray! And that is how quality podcasting is on the, done, on the folks. Live, <laughs> on the live video. So we're going to keep going. Full, full steam ahead, the video is just going to come up a little short. So if you're watching on YouTube, welcome. This is Chapter Tactics. You missed the intro, but you all skipped the intro anyways, so that's okay. All right, this episode is brought to you by Frontline Gaming. Go ahead on over to FrontlineGaming.org. Buy cool, awesome 40k stuff. Right now we're having a Cyber Monday sale, although it's Tuesday when you're listening to this. So I'm sorry that you missed out, but you can still go over there, buy some mats, buy all sorts of good stuff. Also, check out the Frontline Gaming Network, where you can find all sorts of competitive 40k podcasts, where we might also be bringing you another kind of podcast. I know, we grow them on trees. There's a lot, but uh, this one's good, I promise. This one one looks promising. Alright, today's episode, we're going to talk about two things today. We're going to talk about terrain, all things terrain. We're going to talk about the best terrain layouts we've found while we've been playing games of 9th edition. We're also going to talk about what kind of terrain uh, works for us, what kind of terrain you should expect, uh, possibly even batting ideas back and forth about what the ideal terrain layout is, uh, because there isn't a general consensus. The one thing we found consistently in 9th edition so far, the one rule from the core rulebook that everyone has argued is terrain. Uh, And not specifically the terrain rules, although they are a little wonky and unintuitive, and we'll talk about that as well. But more importantly, what the ideal terrain loadout is, what you, how much terrain should we expect to see? We haven't seen anything or heard anything from GW yet on what an official match play terrain table looks like. Uh, Although, if if we're being honest, I imagine it would be something like GW uh, only terrain and a couple ruins, and then played on a, a an Imperialis, a Sector Imperialis Rumble Battle Board, or something like that. Like, something that, that's not accessible to the average gamer, or 40k player. So, we're going to talk about that too. We're going to bat around some ideas about standardized 40k, uh, standardized terrain in 40k. And then finally, we're going to talk about uh, another matchup from that local tournament played at Magikarp Used Fly. If you want to head over to their YouTube channel, they have a very fun video uh, where they're talking about a single or double elimination bracket tournament uh, where they all built lists and they're playing each other to the death for all the glory. Uh, and this episode, we're going to talk about probably their best and most competitive list going up against Death Guard. That's Harlequins versus Death Guard. So we're going to break down both lists for you, uh, where we think the lists can improve, win conditions, uh, and then we're going to predict who we think is going to win or lose that game. All right. I think that's a great. That is a that is a great idea, Pablo. You know, I think I think it is. It's always fun, especially to look at you know different competitive stuff, 
as people make it competitive because you can kind of make your own meta within your group of friends and then make it something really interesting. Yeah, and, and one thing I've always found, not just in 40k, but it kind of in life, uh, when you have that local friend meta, there's always an arms race eventually. Like one guy discovers how good this one unit is and everyone has to beat him. So they help take other things that beat that one thing and then it just snowballs from there. Uh, and then you all go to your first ever tournament and just get destroyed and realize, holy crap, we, we have been living in a bubble. So... That's always fun to talk about, and I kind of like I kind of like uh, analyzing those kind of metas uh, and games. All right, terrain. I'm I'm just gonna start off with a general, simple question to get the ball rolling. What do you both think is the ideal terrain density and layout for Ninth Edition? Just raw your opinion from the games you've played. I think the book remit. Re- says that 25% is the typical terrain density. I think in 9th edition, you do want a bit higher than that. Um, Probably more like 30 to 35% of the table with terrain. Because the the book's sort of basic recommendation, I find, looks fairly light to my eyes. Uh, I don't know if you guys' experience on that is the same. I think it depends. Like, I feel like... uh, a 25% but a good 25% of terrain is better than a 35% because putting too much terrain on the board it can be it, it can if it's like if it's terrain that that's that has a lot of windows in it uh the ruins are based the rules are kind of weird the trees are immovable um it it's i feel like that's less important than the density uh or that's more important than well. the density yeah, but, um, there's there's more to it than just 35% of the table, but right. I feel like that is a good starting point, is like 30 to 35%. I think no matter what terrain density you use, uh, you have a sort of minimum number of obscuring or, at the very least, dense pieces of terrain are needed. Um, if you don't have any obscuring pieces on the terrain, it doesn't matter how much terrain you brought. Yeah, I I would agree. I think I think that it's not necessarily about like how thick it is. It's about the usability of the terrain. I find that that definitely has more of an impact than like how crammed the table is full of terrain. So if you have you know if you have like eight pieces of terrain on the table, but each piece of terrain is well placed in a location that sort of like makes sense and is usable by most of the units in someone's army and provides or increases sort of like the tactical gameplay of maneuvering and, you know, and being able to hide behind stuff or being able to like use staging areas to sort of like push into an objective or parts of the board. That's, I find, uh, of great value to any terrain set that you're putting on the table. Now, I do think that as, you know, it's more important to have good understanding of what the various keywords are for terrain sets or Mm -hmm. the terrain in general and what types of terrain there are so that when you do try and set up a game or try and set up a table that you're able to put the more appropriate keywords to make sure that the table will kind of work better regardless of what the table physically looks like i think that it that's that that has a bigger impact 
Okay, perfect. And we have mm. our first stream technical difficulty. Uh, Scary and Sean, there's a little bit of echo, so just make sure the discords are muted as well. Scary's and basically just mute everything in Discord, yourself and all of the people listening. But that should be an easy fix. Let me know, chat, if that if that echo went away. Uh, Sean, do you, I have a question about dense terrain density, or specifically what is good dense terrain or good line of sight blocking terrain? Um, you threw that term you threw that term out there. Uh, and how much is too much? So obviously, mm. uh, we want to. I, I think we kind of want to, as a community, move away from the magic box. Um, I think that in general, ninth edition doesn't really need the magic boxes anymore. The rules for ninth mm. don't really make as much sense. So, how much of the terrain, or how much of the table, should a piece of terrain block if it's like a core line of sight blocking piece of terrain? I mean, I, I don't think I can answer how much of the table it should block. I would say it should be enough to hide at least one rhino and probably more like two in order to be a functional piece. Uh, because, you know, a piece of, of line of sight blocking terrain that you can't even hide a full squad behind is basically worthless. I would say also, like, typically, like, Four to five pieces per table is about what I feel is good for that sort of thing. Um, that's enough to break up the table so that it's not just a shooting gallery and uh, make it so that there are distinct zones on the table, uh, presuming that they are placed appropriately, of course, um, but also does not completely disable shooting to the point where you know nothing can really engage outside of 12 inches. Mm. Yeah, the, 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 it's always been a very interesting point, and um, you know, just running a lot of events, uh, and a lot oftentimes, as much as you, if you've been to the LVO, as much as you might see that the terrain is all really cool and nice, uh, frontline gaming hasn't always worked with the best terrain in the world, uh, mm -hmm. and so one kind of philosophy we adopted when we've kind of had to like jerry rig terrain setups together is that you shouldn't be able to see your opponent's deployment zone completely from any from any point on the board except in their deployment zone or near their deployment zone. Something, basic rules like that, uh, I think help out a lot. Um, I like the idea of being able to cover a rhino and a squad with yeah. a ruin. I don't, how tall should they be, right? It, it doesn't, obviously with Titanic monsters, it doesn't matter a whole lot. Well, it doesn't matter. Well, it does. It, it does matter because if you They need to be more than... Oh, I was going to say, they need to be more than three inches in order to qualify for the obscuring trait. Um, other than that, it doesn't matter how tall they are. Yeah, but what you need as well is, uh, the, 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 not for that, but if you want to diversify like units in the meta, like things like people bringing different lists or different units, a lot of the times having larger, taller, wider pieces of terrain will sort of encourage different gameplay. Like being able to hide a knight completely out of line of sight or being able to hide a, a plane or being able to hide, you know, a Tantalus, which has like a giant sail, or being able to hide, you know, like a Bane Blade. Um, so things that don't have windows are relatively tall, have like decent frontage or like areas, you know, that just enhances not only gameplay, but also list building, you know, because what I find is if you have a very generic style of like terrain that, you know, people quickly will find and break exactly what works and what doesn't work within like a terrain like style. And 
as soon as they figure out, hey, don't take any of this, don't take any of that, all you need is to take this, then it sort of skews like armies that can do what is good for that terrain set well. Like it skews them and makes them more prevalent, right? So if one army can take a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't need line of sight blocking terrain, like the power level of that army sort of like drastically increases if there's not something in there that sort of gives other armies a chance to sort of participate. You know, the game is very deadly. If you don't have things that can hide, then the meta sort of like stagnates, you know, when it's like, well, there's none of this terrain. There's none of that terrain. All you see is this style of terrain. So all these units that have really cool rules or abilities or stuff that could potentially be useful, if you put it on the table and go second, they die, right? So unless you're spending all your CPs to outflank them, you might as well just not take them. So there's like all this cool stuff that you could be using to kind of add flavor to your army, but then you can't if there's like not a great variety of terrain and tables. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Um, I, so so here's here's another thing too, right? Is you, you're right, Scary, um, in that uh, I think players should at least reasonably expect some sort of terrain meta or some. some Basically, um, you shouldn't. I, I think that uh, you shouldn't like bring a model expecting it to be expecting it to interact with the terrain in this very specific way, and then have it not interact with the terrain in that way when you get to the tournament. So think like um, like imagine if you played like at Nova, right, where uh, a tournament widely reg- widely known for having standardized terrain. Uh, and you've been playing on Nova L's. You know what the Nova L looks like. For those of you who don't know, it's literally just like. And I'm going to show with the chat so they know it's literally just like an L like this. It's just two books, blocks, you know, six, seven inches, something like that. But, uh, and then imagine if like you showed up to Nova and they cut the L by like two inches, right? And now all of a sudden your knight could be seen from the other side of the L. So I think there's a reasonable expectation as a player to, to know what to expect with your terrain. So I guess my question for you both is, is where's the line between standardized terrain and different terrain per the table? Because if you have, if you don't have standardized terrain at your table, chances are you're not going to have the same pieces on every table. Like think of the LVO, both of you played in the LVO. The terrain layouts among specific like tables are kind of standardized, but more importantly, there none of the tables really look the same. Uh, you're not getting the same experience. So in ninth edition, do you think that standard terrain table, uh, where every table has that ruin that blocks the knight, or you know is tall enough to block your key pieces, your tantalus, do you think that's more important, or do you think uh, having diversity is more important uh, at a tournament level? For a tournament, I would say that there is a lot more value in standardization, especially for a big tournament. Because, you know, I I do agree with Skari to a degree that, you know, you want some sort of unique experience from table to table. You don't want players to be able to abuse a, a standard layout that has very, very specific features. But you also don't want players coming away with a negative play experience because they got the only table that doesn't have any L ruins on it. So, the larger your tournament is, I feel, the more standardization has value. 
or at the very least sort of setting up a a set of minimum thresholds for like every table will have at least this as opposed to like the standard layouts that uh Adepticon or Nova you kind of use. So I would say that I like standardization in certain like in certain situations. And in most situations that's what you get and it's sort of like the expected if you're going to do a tournament, I personally like offset standardized terrain. So not necessarily mirrored terrain, but with slight mm. differences to make something like the roll to choose sides to mean something. Um, yeah. For example, you know, and it doesn't have to be anything crazy. It could be the difference between having like a barricade or a forest or something like really simple or straightforward that doesn't completely change or like put any one side in like detriment. Right. Um, however, it can, it actually makes that choice or, you know, a little bit more meaningful. I think that's important because then you have to sort of weigh, okay, well, do I want to give my opponent the ability to pick sides because I want to see where they start deploying and I want to have them finish deploying first so I can like counter deploy them. Or do I want to make sure that I get that side so that I get that ruin or whatever instead of a crater or I get a crater instead of a ruin or, you know, it's just something that I, so I personally think tactically, I enjoy it when it's like not the same on both sides. Yeah, I un unfortunately, I think that's something that is done far too much, is to try to make the table uh, perfectly fair, which actually ends up being unfair because, as Scarry points out, it makes the choice of picking sides completely worthless. And and that is something that I think that we have done for a long time that I would like to see us move away from. Make the terrain unbalanced on purpose, because otherwise picking sides means nothing. Yeah, um, I, I so I'm, I'm in a little bit of disagreement with you both on that one point, but I understand where you're coming from. And I think ultimately what's better for the community is probably going with what you two said. Uh, but basically, I believe that having standardized terrain um, is where, where every table is the same. Um, I believe that that's probably the most fair, but it has to be done perfectly because what you could end up having, have, having and this happened has, has happened in the past, is you have uh, the terrain layout define the meta and then completely eliminate certain styles of play, right? So like think about like 8th edition where there were certain tournaments where you'd see like a magic box on every table right and the magic box was such a defining piece of terrain that it really helped melee infantry armies that could get into that box first do well and then uh god forbid there was an objective in that magic box then you were you were screwed uh if you were like a vehicle based or knight based army so i i definitely think that in, until gw finds a perfect solution or someone finds a perfect solution um you should probably try to keep the terrain um varied uh, maybe kind of like an LVO thing is probably the best way. It's like where where there's ver variety, but still some standardization. So you kind of see the basics of it. Uh, one thing I really want to see GW do step up is make a terrain layout, a virtual terrain layout for every every single mission. Uh, and then they balance it around that mission. So and then, and then they publish it. They're like, okay, look, mission number one, we have these two ruins here. They're offset near the center of the board x inches away they are always nine inches high no matter how no matter what the terrain looks like they're always you know x by x 
width and height and diameter. And then they do that for all of their missions, or maybe a couple of their missions, and then everyone just plays with those rules, no matter what your terrain looks like. Then it doesn't matter what terrain you put on the board is, because both players know what it does. They know what attributes are attributed to that terrain. They know how tall it's supposed to theoretically cover, so they they know if a Magnus can hide behind it or not. Uh, virtual terrain rules are already the direction GW is taking the game, so they can just go a step further and make these virtual terrain rules that literally anyone can use. That also opens the door for themed terrain, too. You could bring your, like, wonky Eldar-themed terrain with a bunch of spikes, or not spikes, like spires and, you know, weird curvy spirit stone things or whatever. Uh, And even though it looks weird, both players know what each terrain piece on that board is, because of GW's, you know, virtual terrain layout that attributes, uh, you know, aspects of, uh, or attributes stats to those terrain pieces, basically. Yeah, I I, I, I can see that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, GW, get on it. Do it. Do it. Do it. So my next question about terrain, uh, this has to do with ruins. Now, ruins, I think, are probably the most important pieces of terrain still. Uh, you know, they obviously, they do a lot for balancing the game, uh, away from, you know, these kind of like spammy monster vehicle lists, although I don't think they need help right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I know, I know, I, Sean. I'm not worried about monster vehicle lists. That's not what's winning <laughs> anything. More importantly, um, I, I like ruins because of the extra dimension they give to games. Uh, you, the wall is impassable for certain units, which makes it so that you want to kind of plan around that specific thing uh when you're playing your games um it, they could also be leveled so you, you know you have different vantage points uh they look cooler um so ruins the one of the uh arguments or debates i guess that was brought up very briefly uh in the patron group and i've seen repeated ad nauseum on other groups is should ruins be based or not uh, and for those of you who don't know uh if you base a ruin traditionally that also means that if you're on the base of the ruin, because the base of the ruin is considered a part of the terrain piece, uh, you can be shot at if there is a window. And the, basically the obscuring rule doesn't apply to you if you're standing on that base. Um, what are your thoughts on basing ruins and basing terrain in general? Um, I, I just honestly, I think it just depends on, you know, what, you know, how, how, comfortable are you with like storing it really <laughs> i think a lot of it comes down to that i i like the basing and stuff and as as long as you kind of get away from the like really thinking hey it's got a base and i have to like it's gonna draw it's gonna block line of sight to the base and instead of thinking of that as like a negative thing you know just kind of take it take it more you know easy breezy you know just accept it and uh, and learn how to play with it yeah i think people make more of a deal out of it than it really is like yeah the base expands the area of the ruin and makes it cover a significantly larger section of the table in many cases but there are already ruins of varying sizes on the table or at least there should be so it's not it's not really a problem from as I see it. Uh, and I say this as someone who plays quite a lot of shooting armies. Okay. All right. 
now I have a moving on question for both of you. Uh, and I think it's actually a really fun question um, that I'm going to warn you now, you probably haven't had a lot of time to think about it. So I'm going to ask the question and then give you an answer to give you both time to think about it. Okay? All right. So the question is, what armies do you think are hamstrung the most by bad terrain? And what armies do you think really, really take advantage of of bet like basically which armies do you think really need good terrain to thrive and which armies do you think don't care which like they just play around terrain the best uh and i'm going to start with knights um i think as a knight player terrain has always kind of defined knights uh and their ability to move around the board but in ninth edition knights already have a weak spot um they're, they're just worse and having bad terrain, especially when you play the forest rules properly, where you can't move the trees at all, uh, and also denser terrain, uh, knights will have a really hard time, you, you know, navigating the boards of ninth edition. Um, so, I, I ninth are definitely or knights are definitely one of those uh, armies that even in the past have always kind of defined by their ability to interact with the terrain or lack thereof think of like the magic box meta of eighth edition um moving on to like uh canonite hide or not now with the obscuring rule um and the the uh plus one save being changed with the cover rule being saved as well for knights basically knights need a lot of help uh i think space marines are probably i think the best army with handling terrain uh, just because they have the most tools the units that normally would get kind of affected by terrain, like bikes, um, don't really care because they usually have enough movement, the ability to advance and charge, uh, the durability to handle that. Uh, obviously, most of the best space marine lists right now are infantry heavy, which infantry love ruins. They love ruins all over the board. Um, they can usually take advantage of some of those rules, uh, and then they can just outflank everything else. Space marines are just, they're good in general, um, but I think they're one of those armies that just isn't affected at all by terrain, no matter where what you play on. Or any other armies, factions you can think of? So I think oh. someone like, um, I'm just going to go straight straight up and say Dark Eldar need good terrain. <laughs> they're they're an army that if uh, there's no terrain on the table, they get shot off the board very very quickly. So they do they usually require decent terrain to play effectively, and to really sort of use them to the most of their ability. As for an army that I feel doesn't really need terrain too much, even though it does like having terrain, but like a good horde orc army doesn't care. They just have like all the all the boys, and as long as they can hide a few characters behind a wall uh, to protect them from snipers, they tend to be okay. It also does depend on what you mean by bad terrain, because bad terrain could be like no terrain on the table, uh, but it also can be like enormous amounts of terrain. Uh, and uh, as the chat kind of points out here, like if you have a totally empty planet bowling ball situation, um, Tau and other shooting armies actually suddenly become quite good. Uh, because you can just kind of kill whatever you want, and most armies can't actually deal with just having everything in their their list sniped out at will. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Uh, I think the reason why I brought this up was because I think picking your faction also has a big impact on how you're on how you you expect to do well. 
um, when it comes to terrain, right? So if you're worried about terrain and you've got a faction that's multidimensional, can take different builds, you might be better off taking a horde faction, which I'm scar. I'm glad you mentioned orcs. Uh, orcs are doing really well right now at a variety of events, just just because they don't have to worry about terrain at all. Uh, the terrain right now in Ninth Edition is really weird. You don't really know what to expect. I've had a lot of people reach out to me and say, uh, "Yeah, it's it's been hard to predict, you know, where the meta is, just because the terrain is so unstandardized and no one's tracking it too." Right, so you kind of have to take all of those tournament results that we talked about in the last episode um, with a bit of a grain of salt because they don't they don't take into account what terrain looks like for all of those events, uh, and they won't until a until we start getting more events and b until GW comes out and says this is how we think the game should be match play should be played. This is you know this is a terrain layout. We really just need like one map from GW just just to let us know. Um, you know, this is kind of what we expect. Like, this is what we play on. This is what we played on when we play tested ninth edition. That's what, even though I know they probably, you know, they've got play testers and play testers don't have access to the exact same. Anyways, it's a whole complicated thing. But I would like, I would like to see some standardization from GW there. But if you're worried about terrain, definitely try to go horde, go uh, heavy on the infantry. Infantry are pretty much always going to be, you know, good. And then if you're really, really worried, make like your your beat stick hammer units your scalpel units give, try and give them the fly keyword if they have it or if you know you're gonna play on planet bowling ball play tau or harlequins <laughs> harlequins are harlequins are harlequins are one of those armies that benefits from terrain but but yeah. only, but doesn't hold they, on let me finish it depends hold on, on. Matchup Pablo, there. you're talking depends your on matchup there you're no 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 yeah. like like that just depends on that like harlequins just because they have an invul save and they're like have minus six to wound and like minus six to hit you you'd think yes, so let me finish uh, go ahead hold on what i was gonna say is harlequins is one of those armies that benefits a lot from terrain but doesn't really feel like it's affected a lot by the terrain Meaning that... I don't think that's true. Yeah, I, I okay, still disagree well, with you. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. At least you let me finish. That's the most important thing. Um, I just feel like Harlequins, because of their speed, their fly, their army-wide mobility, their really good infantry, their bikes, they, they are, like Scar is going to say, they are very fragile. Um, but I, I just I don't see Harlequins like losing a lot from bad terrain that affects them versus like... Anyways, go ahead, do you, go ahead Sean. Do you, do you play Harlequins, Popo? You know what? To be fair, I do not. I okay. Do not play Harlequins. Yeah, Harlequins really need some line of sight blocking terrain because the scariest thing in the world for them is being able to put your regular bolter shots where you want them. Can't if they you just can just though? if you can just shoot bolters at the guys that you want to shoot them at because they're not engaged in combat and they're not behind a a piece of obscuring terrain, suddenly Harlequins start going away really fast. Yeah, that, that's fair. I, I I guess I hadn't considered the base the basic bolter, um, which is very line of sight reliant because of how short it is, um, yeah. in the rapid fire range. Uh, that is that is true. Um, all the harlequins are just so. Every time I look at a harlequin players play games, uh, in battle reports and stuff, I'm always just like, I should just play harlequins. That army's just really good. They're very good, but they also they come apart very easily. Uh, a, a Harlequin's game can turn from winning to tabled In like, very quickly. Like this, one failed psychic power, or you know, yep. one like it, it can it can really go take take a turn for the worse. And a lot of their stratagems rely on 
like jumping back and forth and getting in and attacking and then getting behind line of sight blocking terrain and you know and they just work best when there's lots of terrain because they don't care about the terrain in terms mm-hmm. of movement and things like that so the heavier it is the more they can sort of focus what they like their strength on an isolated force of the enemy and then wipe it out completely with sheer volume and then kind of move on to something else like that tends to be something that works well for them yeah they also uh anyways moving on from harlequins um I think that's pretty much it. Chaos Demons are one of those weird factions in that there's so many different playstyles you can go with Chaos Demons and the Chaos Soup in general uh, that like Space Marines don't really have access to, or I guess not don't have access to, it's just they don't care, they don't use their options. Um, Chaos Demons are interesting. Uh, I really want to start a Chaos list just because, or Chaos Army, just because of the ability to take advantage of all sorts of terrain. Looking back at like 8th edition, you would actually see different chaos lists prop, pop up depending on what meta you or what um, super major you would go to, right? So, like, a Jim Vessel, I think, was probably the rare exception. Uh, Jim Vessel, TJ Lanigan, right? Basically, the same chaos list. There were multiple super majors, um, but you would see, like, like when Nick Nadavati was running chaos, he'd run a different chaos list at the at Nova than the one he ran at like the LVO. Um, but these players would still bring chaos lists. Um, they would just bring different flavors, and I I like that variety. Are there any other factions you think that can do that, or you think chaos is kind of the weird exception where they can they can go big heavy monster if they if they you know know that their monsters can hide, or they can go horde if they're expecting planet bowling ball and they don't care. I think a lot of factions are actually affected significantly by terrain. Um, if you do look to uh, when uh, Nick and some of the other big names talk about their lists, uh, they often will say, like, oh, I wouldn't bring this list to Nova, or like, oh, this is, this is my LVO list, I only take it to LVO. Because there are, there are a lot of considerations from terrain to mission to other factors that come into something like that. Oh, 100%. And... And that's what I meant with saying, like, the meta sort of, like, gets shaped, you know? And for the longest time, there's been, like, you know, certain large events across the entirety of the planet that have, like, um, you know, reputation, per se, when it comes to terrain. And that that shapes, like, the styles of armies that tend to do well at these these different, like, places. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's definitely, like you know, traveling around to different tournaments and having gone to them in the past. Because one thing is, like, it's hard to change the terrain that you own quickly. Um, So if you've been to a tournament in the past, you can often know, like, oh, I know what they're going to have this time because it's what they had last time. Um, And you can use that to say, like, okay, I remember they have that one gigantic hill that is 32 inches tall and 25 inches across that's gonna be on one of the tables. I can't just lose if I play against that thing. Um, and so you can you can look to the terrain that you're expecting and the terrain that you've seen in the past and get an idea what that's gonna mean for the armies you play. All right. Um, I want to talk about non ruins now. <laughs> um, so okay, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be 100 honest here. I have not read up on all of the terrain rules. I know the basics. Like the minus two to charge, uh, the 
in, unblockable uh, rule for the forests and stuff where I think you can't move the trees, but no one, everyone moves the trees anyways. Uh, random things well, like that. I mean, that's not actually a rule. It's just, oh, okay. you know, you typically can't move pieces of terrain when you don't want them where they are. Um, but it depends a lot on how your local meta actually, like, treats the forests and what they consider well, the, the terrain. The, the, like, forests themselves in the rule of reachable or whatever, like, you know, you can't physically move through pieces of forests and stuff like that. The yeah. only thing you can move through is, like, walls. So some are a little bit more flexible and they have, like, movable stuff so you can do it. But normally, you know, it's supposed to be an area that's that's hard to traverse. I personally like it when it's very much like, hey, this is, you know, this is uh, this is probably a lot harder for you to deal with than it normally is. I think that's a good thing in a lot of situations. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, it, so the one thing I find having difficulty, uh, you know, learning about the terrain at like random RTTs and things is isn't the ruins because generally people play ruins the same everywhere you go. Uh, it's just the way the ruin is. It's the the way the ruin is built, or what the ruin is, whether it has like windows or not, or how tall it is. That usually affects how the ruin affects your game. Um, but I've definitely lost games where my opponent was like, "Oh, you can't move over this fence, this like half an inch high fence, and it takes like two inches off your movement." Um, and I'm like, "Oh, okay. So I guess I guess we're playing it like that. But I guess that's maybe how it's supposed to be played." But there's been other games where my opponent's been like, "Ah, I'm just gonna." move my marines can all jump over this two inch wall um because you know it's just uh has like holes in it i don't know my point here is the i think the harder thing to standardize isn't the ruins but is the random bits and bobbles outside the ruins so for you two what are some terrain pieces that you like seeing on the board other than ruins and what are some rules that you think rules and terrain pieces that you just you don't think we really need as an addition I actually like uh, both forests and craters. Um, I think they they add some additional balance to the sort of terrain game because way too many of the terrain pieces only affect shooting. Um, and I like seeing stuff that has an effect on melee as well. Uh, forests and craters both do that. Pieces of defensible terrain can also help that somewhat. But anything that, that changes the melee aspect of the game, which I think is getting a lot more important in 9th edition, uh, I think is is something that, to me at least, is extra interesting. I, I do like the idea of... Um, that's a really good point, Sean. I like the idea of making the deploy or making each deployment zone have specific things. So like someone in chat said each deployment zone should be able to hide a knight. I don't know if I necessarily agree with the ability to hide a knight necessarily. However a deployment zone should be able to hide you know x amount of models or x amount of space of your models but i never thought about you know having each deployment zone have like a couple craters in key points to stop charge it like easy charges turn one charges yeah. um and that's actually a really good idea now that is if don't correct me if i'm wrong here that is an attribute you can just give ruins right you couldn't yeah. you just make the go ahead the, I was going to say, the, the beauty of the, the ninth edition terrain system is there are no rules for ruins. There's some suggested rules, but you can apply any keyword you want to any terrain piece you please. Um, so if you think that your ruin should not be obscuring, then it isn't. As long as you and your opponent agree on that, and the, the tournament organizer doesn't define terrain as an overall thing, um, 
that you can add or subtract keywords as you feel is appropriate. Um, so I, I feel that Knight's terrain system is very flexible in that respect, where you can kind of customize the the rules for your pieces to fit each individual piece. Yeah, yeah what we it don't does really... allows okay. you to have like standardized rule sets, but then completely change the look of tables, for example. And mm -hmm. that really helps with if you have a limited sort of like pool of terrain, you can make the terrain work differently uh, based on you know, the keywords that you assign to it. So one of the pieces of terrain that I think are is like fun to see are obstacles. A lot of people don't oh, yeah. really understand how obstacles work in terms of like, you don't have to be in them. You just have to be sort of behind them within three inches to get the benefit of, uh, to get benefit of cover. Um, as long as like the shooting goes over the obstacle, you know, and the obstacles closer, you know, so there's little things like that, that, um, that, you know, I feel make a big difference once you start getting to learn like well how does arid terrain versus an obstacle versus you know uh you know uh, that sort of stuff work as well you know and uh a piece that i think is overrated i think is some of the bigger pieces that gw has put out like the sky shield landing pad and things like that they're like <laughs> they're like weirdly shaped and you know, you could put like obscuring and stuff as a rule on it or whatever, and then it's like, you know, mega massive. You know what I mean? So I don't know. It's just, it's just interesting. Some of those more novelty like story pieces I find can be a little bit interesting. Yeah, I really like the the Minotaurum armored containers and all, basically like your your hills and your generic pieces of terrain that don't do anything except block line of sight. Um, but they're more flexible, right? The containers, I think, are my favorite. I love seeing a table with a lot of containers just because they give you the option to, you know, change up firing lanes, uh, move, move the board around, uh, you know, move them around objectives so objectives aren't completely out in the open, but they're not, you know, impenetrable fortresses. Mm -hmm. So I really like those a lot. It, it's kind of interesting that you guys talk about the the terrain rules and how flexible the terrain are. But I, I don't really see that reflected out in the the overall meta everyone's kind of asking about asking for a terrain like a, a standardized terrain rules or standard terrain layout from gw or from anyone um but it, it might be harder to to do uh than i'd originally thought right because there are more rules and there are more there are more, you know many varieties and styles of terrain that you can attribute rules to so it you two final question before i move to the patron questions what what is your ideal standard layout with the rules? Um, if you if you have to like design your perfect tournament terrain table that you could practice on, I go um, for the WTC terrain sets. To be honest, um, what's that? So the World Team Championship, which are the World Team Championships for forty k, have a series of um, terrain layouts that they use for the competition, and these are eight different terrain setups. Two of them are heavy, like heavy, heavy, heavier than you've probably ever played on tables. Two, uh, four of them are about standard, what you'd expect, going from like standard heavy to standard like medium light, and then two of them are light, where it's like a hill and like two little craters, basically, uh, like as in like barren wastelands, and uh, and it's all about like getting the matchups and stuff. But I usually practice on a variety from very very light tables to very very heavy tables, and I use their templates to get a better understanding of how my army can do basically. 
Yeah, I don't have a a super exact like this is you know the one layout I prefer, but that, that minimum density is really where I'm at. Like I'm I, I'm generally fairly flexible about like I think there are lots of valid setups for uh, terrain depending on what you want to do and just to have a little variety between games. All right. Um, I, I really like having four ruins on a table. That's about as much input as I can add to that. <laughs> I like four runes. Four I like, ruins, I like buddy. Four line ruins. Of sight, simple line of sight blocking terrain. I don't like a lot of rules to my weird little pieces of terrain. But I, you know what I think I'm going to do is I think I'm gonna, the next game I play of 9th edition, I'm just going to put as I'm just going to give every terrain every piece of every rule I can. So like my ruins are going to be obscuring, you know, uh, minus two to charges, cover. I don't know, ba- I don't whatever whatever I can think of, just so I could learn these terrain rules properly uh, and really really get an idea of um, what I like, how I like playing ninth edition. Because I think we have to adapt as a community moving forward uh, to figure out how to play with these new terrain rules. Um, but we'll see. All right, let's go ahead and move on to next segment. But first, word from our sponsors, uh, unless you're watching this live or on YouTube. Actually, no, on YouTube, you're still going to get sponsors. If you're watching this live, you're just going to sit us, you're going to watch us awkwardly sit for a few seconds. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges. So you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash Spotify. And we are back. All right. Let's go and move on to the second part of the show where we talk about the matchup. And this is actually going to be a matchup between uh, Magikarp, Matt, Matt, the guy, the Magikarp, the Magikarp used fly guy, uh, Matt and his Harlequins, uh, and then Demeki and his Death Guard. So this is Harlequins versus Death Guard. This was uh, actually picked as a not, or as a a non-competitive list. Uh, The Death Guard list was a um, second bracket list, kind of like they gave it the buy just as a handicap, and they did that for a couple of the lists that were were deemed underpowered. However, I think this Death Guard list was probably the best out of all of those um, because it's it's not bad. It's it's not amazing, but it looks really really intimidating. If I were to play this particular Death Guard list, I think I'd have a hard time uh, playing it with my Space Marines uh, or Necrons. But uh, that's it. We're going to go ahead and read off the two lists for you. So um, Matt's Harlequins are. You've got uh, Frozen Stars um, with uh, an extra relic. Uh, one Shadow Seer, one tr- two Troop Masters, one, two, three, four, three units of troops with uh, Kisses. And, well, actually, there are the one unit with the Heart Caresses, one unit with Kisses, and one unit with the Blades. Uh, all Shuriken. Pi- oh, actually. They're all mixed. They are all mixed. You know what? It's three units of five troops with. Some fusion pistol units thrown in there, one shuriken pistol thrown in there, and then two, three big units of ten, all with shuriken pistols uh, mixed with caresses and kisses. Uh, Death Jester, two big units of skyweavers or uh, five band units of skyweavers, uh, and three star weavers, and that that is it. That's just a Harlequins list. 
Yeah, it's pretty uh, standard. It's pretty standard. Yeah, that's a pretty standard um that's a pretty standard Harlequin's list. The that that troopmaster with the um the I think it's the Twilight Fang. Um He's a- awesome. anyways, the, the those troopmasters are so good. They do oh, yeah. a lot of work. I, I, I don't see people bringing solitaires anymore just because the troopmaster just does what a solitaire does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Next up, we've got the uh, Death Guard list. Um, this is the Poxmongers uh, play company uh, with two demon princes of Nurgle, one with the Hellforged sword, um, and both of them have wings, and then one with uh, Sanguis Flux, uh, an Ironclop Furnace, Plague Spear, you know, just a bunch of bunch of uh, Nurgly, Nurgly things, Nurgly keywords that I don't necessarily know. Uh, one has one psychic power, the other has three psychic powers? Yes. One unit of Plague Marines, seven Plague Marines with a Plague Champion, two basic Plague Marine units. Um, the seven Plague Marine unit has two Blight Launchers as well. Uh, there's all Plague Knives, no Plague Axes. Five Mythetic Blight Haulers, which I believe are the little tiny like beep-beep things, right? Uh, yeah, the, the tripod guys. All right, they're only 100 points. That's not bad. Yeah, they came way That's, down. They're really yeah, good, bad. too, especially when you, like, mix them with all the stuff they get, like the Iron Clock Furnace, and you give them, like, all the saves yeah. and stuff like that. Like, it's, yeah, it's pretty nuts. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one unit of Chaos Spawn, three Plague Burst Crawlers, and a Chaos Rhino. Uh, so kind of a, a more mech mechanized Death Guard list. Uh, with you know the three plague burst crawlers and the five mythetic blight haulers, uh, how how do you see this game going out? Just first impressions right off the bat. I think the just sort of base list level, the Harlequins have the advantage. Um, they have the the fusion and haywire to eat up the vehicles. They have the multi damage melee to put some punch in on the plague marines. They're starting from a fairly good place, just kind of like lining the units up against each other. It's not to say that the Death Guard can't win, but Harlequins are just a stronger army than Death Guard right now. Okay. Uh, yeah, Harlequins, I, I agree with you. Um, that Harlequins list, it's not even just the bikes. Um, it's just, it has the ability yeah. to just pick up, well, it is It is just the bikes. No, um, it's, it it's the, also got three fusion boats. Uh, yeah. Each of those will, will just strip a vehicle down even with all the the death guard bonuses yeah the the problem is is that the harlequins list is just faster than the death guard list i i believe that if yeah. the harlequins player bum rushes the death guard player uh and puts those bikes in a a position to die quickly um the death guard player has a chance but mm-hmm. you know the, the 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 death guard player i actually think i really like the death guard player's list i like the five multi-meltas chilling on Mythetic Blight Haulers. Yeah. Um, and I, I... It would be interesting to see what the Death Guard shooting is going to do to the Star Weavers um, so and the, the bikes, if you can see them. The the biggest thing here is Death Guard have, like, the, all the, like, the toughness that can sort of, like, soak in the Harlequin punch. So, like, unless the Harlequin gets really, like, lucky with, like, the pistols and stuff like that to, like, do some damage or the Haywire or whatever, like... The Death Guard is, like, surprisingly tough. <laughs> like, surprisingly tough. At, at, and those and if he makes most of his saves, the Harlequins are going to have a hard time dealing with with them specifically. So, so I don't know. Yeah. I feel like, like, 
like it's definitely in the it's the Harlequins are like game to lose. I want to say. Yeah, the big danger I think, as Scurry points out, is um, if the Death Guard just get a good round of saves, they can just shrug off the the Harlequin players' plan for a turn, or you know, at least in one sector of the board. And Harlequins are so reliant on getting hits in and not getting hits back that that can go very poorly. Like if they charge one of those 10-man troops into something and just kind of whiff it, that can suddenly get very, very ugly for them. Yeah, I think if you're the Death Guard player, I think I think what you do is you play you deploy really conservatively and try to give mm. your opponent first turn if you can. Uh, and then the rest of the game should be you moving up the center of the board uh, and hoping that the Harlequins player doesn't target prioritize correctly. Because if you're the Harlequins player, you're not going to be able to kill as much as you think, right? The, those mm. mortal wounds, they, they drop on average like 12 mortal wounds on a vehicle, um, the the bikes do, just in shooting. Uh, you probably don't want to charge in, so you're probably going to stick to shooting with the bikes. Um, but those 12 mortal wounds get dropped down to 9 mortal wounds, um, with some luck, might not be able to kill a Plague Burst Crawler completely, each unit. Um, so, And then other than that, your Fusion Pistols aren't going to be able to kill anything quickly, turn one, maybe even turn two. Um, so your bikes are really going to have to do heavy lifting. Uh, and those Myphitic Blight Haulers, if they start popping star, star the, the vehicles, the transports, early on uh, with some lucky shots, the Harlequin player is going to have to just walk up to a death guard army and specifically those demon princes um and might lose the the issue is the the harlequins are so much faster than death guard and death guard don't really have any good way to deal with that you know as as a if i were playing the harlequin list i would look at like my first target is not those blight haulers or the plague burst crawlers uh but that rhino um take out that rhino and suddenly the entire Death Guard army is moving like six inches. And that's not enough to take all the objectives and get where you need to be. At that point, the Death Guard has to spread out, uh, because they can't all just be, like, balled up on a single objective. And as soon as you're spread out, then you're doing exactly what the Harlequins want, and they pounce on one part of your army and destroy it. Yeah, that's true. Scar is right. I mean, really, it really is the Harlequin's uh, Harlequin players' uh, game to lose. Um, but like yeah. you guys mentioned before earlier, it, the, you know, Harlequin players can they can make a mistake and throw the game. And the Death Guard, I don't think the Harlequin player is going to table the Death Guard player. Um, no, absolutely not. So uh... if the yeah, if the Death Guard player gets you know manages to hold onto objectives, uh, gets in the middle of the board, scores high, scores early, uh, he might lo- win with like five bottles on the table. It's certainly possible that Death Guard win. Uh, you know, I would I would favor Harlequins, but Death Guard do have the tools to potentially do well, uh, especially depending on the mission. It will depend a lot on where the objectives are and how they're concentrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, TJ in the chat is um, saying the Blight Haulers were tough in 8th edition, uh, how he played a list Delvio. Uh, and could kill nine of them with a Leviathan Dread, but it took like three turns to do it. Yeah. So. Yeah, Blight, the, the Blight Haulers are no joke, uh, especially with the upgrades to the Multi-Melta and not taking the heavy penalty anymore. They can be quite scary. 
Yeah, uh, and then TJ's got a great great point with the. It does depend on the mission they pick. Uh, unfortunately, um, I didn't. They only had the missions for the. You know what? I just didn't see the missions for this game on that one. I'm sure they probably had it up somewhere. I just couldn't find it in time for the for the the podcast. But um, anyways, it should be a very interesting game. I actually really like this game. Um, I I don't know if the Death Guard. I think the they couldn't give the play the Tau player buy two buys yeah um, so th- you know they gave the top player the eight um you know uh first round which you know he lost his sisters um but i really like this death guard list uh i don't know if it's the death guard list that people will bring to you know the D- the death guard list to end all death guard lists um but i really like plague marines right now um and they're only going to get better when they get two wounds and uh i you know i like i, I think the plague burst crawlers are probably honestly you know, I would just maybe take more of my Fetic Blight Haulers and then ch- change out the Plague Burst Callers for, like, Mortarian? I don't know. Nurglings? Probably Nurglings. Nurglings would definitely work. In my opinion. Yeah, I just don't like Plague Burst Callers right now. They're just, they're, they don't perform very well. No, their AP's a little too low to be clearing Marines off of stuff, and they're just not that accurate. So, yeah... Yeah, they they get tied up. Um, they 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 yep. can kind of the tying up is less of an issue if you're putting the flamers on them, um, because you can eat through a fair amount of guys that way. Uh, but yeah, overall, I'm not a huge fan these days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, it's super interesting. I really like the Death Guard list. Uh, and then um, we'll go ahead and uh, I think it's probably a consensus three zero pick for the Harlequins. I think. It will be that, yep. Yeah, that's where I would certainly lean. All right. Well, good luck to both competitors. If you liked this this kind of breakdown of a list, uh, I, I plan on doing it in the future, but let us know in the comments. Let us know if you like the breakdown of uh, win conditions in a tournament game. I, I, I want to kind of... I know that Chapter Tactics uh, is a, a broad 40K podcast that talks about the whole of competitive 40K, um, but I do want to come back to some of the tournament roots uh, where we talk about specific matchups. So in the future, it might not be the Magikarp used fly channel, but it might be you know a tournament, um, or maybe a past tournament matchup where I grab like a fun matchup I thought looked cool on paper, and then we talk about the win conditions, and then uh, I reveal who won or lost that matchup, uh, something like that. But I, I, it doesn't take that long, and I, I think it'd be kind of fun to kind of dive back into ninth edition uh, gameplay that way. Uh, in addition to talking about your standard you know, competitive 40k nonsense and broad topics that Chapter Tactics is known for. All right, so that is it. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com slash chapter tactics. Our patrons get to ask us questions that we answer now officially live on the air, and we also answer them uh, if they are not live and they want to ask us questions anyways. Uh, So if you'd like to do that, boom, head on over there. I will also announce the winner for this month. Uh, actually, you know what? It's tomorrow's Tuesday. We will we will give you all another week to win the Hobby Box. So if you want to win the Frontline Gaming Hobby Box and you are interested in the contents, you can email me. I will let you know what contents are inside because I think by that point, the Hobby Boxes will have already shipped out. Uh, and then you can win one. So you have until... December se- December 7th, next week on Monday, December 6th or December 7th, uh, to enter, and then I will be picking one lucky winner 
to win that hobby box. So you have one more week, just five bucks, you get a chance to win a hobby box, and then you also get to ask us questions that, that we uh, answer and laugh at. And they could be silly questions too, I promise. All right. First patron question goes out to patron Kelsey. Uh, when playing on a table with inadequate terrain, aka planet bowling ball, what strategies do you employ to compensate? Uh, it depends a lot on what kind of army you are. Um, if you're a melee army, I think you have to be much more aggressive there. That you can't afford to like wait and hide behind stuff. You may just have to go in for it in a way that you don't normally do. I think, yeah, I agree. I, I think that you should really look into getting creative with like using things like terrain or like um, CP to keep stuff out of uh, out, in deep strike and things like that as much as possible. Yeah. And then basically make like a value proposition on like how many units or how many models you sort of like give yourself the luxury of losing. <laughs> uh like every turn and then just trying to like use the minimum amount of models possible um for that so yeah um i, I like the the outflanking idea or the putting stuff in reserve is probably the best and simplest way to be planning bowling planet bowling ball lists but one thing i see players a mistake that I see players consistently make on planet bowling ball matchups, uh, specifically into gunline armies like Tau and Astromilitarum, is they don't devote enough resources to the upfront charge. Um, remember, like it, a Riptide can still be move blocked by like a, a Rhino or charged by a Rhino, so it has to fall back. Um, so you know, you if you can't outshoot your opponent, just don't even bother. Like you're your Canoptic Doomstalker isn't going to get more efficient, uh, isn't going to do anything by just sticking in the backfield, trying to outshoot a Tau Gunline, and then dying. Um, you know, get him up there. Get, get Maybe get a charge off. Uh, threat overload is is a very big deal when you're in those kind of matchups. Um, and then hoping your opponent ruins their target priority, uh, or you sneak some characters in. That's Those are all very viable strategies. And then... Um, more importantly, if you keep your opponent in their deployment zone by being aggressive, you can always fall back um, and hide like small units of of objective grabbers and action takers, uh, recon takers, etc., uh, to kind of outscore your opponent. You'd be surprised how often someone who is confident will make mistakes. Yes, <clears throat> if they're overconfident. All the time. And you just have to make sure that you have enough punch left in your army to sort of take advantage of like a mistake like that from overconfidence, if possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Uh, patron David wants to know, or Patron Spencer wants to know, um, should friendly local gaming stores that run events have a sheet with keys to define the train or keep it as a discussion with the players? I am a big fan of having um, defined terrain uh, where, like, you you choose ahead of time, like, what it's all going to be at the start of the tournament rather than letting it vary by player from game to game. But, you know, that's a personal preference. I don't think that's inherently better than the other options. It's just what I like. I I think if you have unstandard terrain um like i played for instance i played an event um last year 
uh, where one of the terrain tables, or actually a couple of the terrain tables, which were actually the top tables, um, had this like really weird theme, and you couldn't tell what was what. You couldn't tell if a building was a ruin or not. It, you know, the there were like weird tower things, and so basically, um, they those tournament organizers had a specific layout sheet for those tables specifically that let players know where everything was supposed to go and what everything was so in that instance i think you probably need a sheet with keys to define the terrain but if you're like a local rtt or a local gaming store and you're running small stuff i think i think sean's right i think it there's no correct answer and you're perfectly okay with just letting the players discuss it because that is in the rules um all right next patron uh, next question comes from uh, Patron David. The tournament community seems to have rallied around the idea of one set of rules for everyone, with the exception of the clear design choice of players placed terrain in 9th edition. Are we all still playing a different game because of this? Aside from logistical issues on site, what are the consequences of removing player placed terrain from the list of strategic choices players can make? Um, I think in general, player placed terrain is actually not a very common thing anymore. I rarely see it. I don't know, I don't know about you two. I I mean I haven't been doing any events in quite some that's, while, that's fair. but it's been a while. That's <laughs> true. My impression from the community is not that that is particularly common. Uh, in fact, with the uh, terrain book that had all of the like player place terrain stuff, uh, I think that received a very negative overall review from the player base. Very very negative. But I think it was like a missed opportunity, you know. Because I yeah. do believe that, like, adding that strategic level of, hey, like, for example, Adepticon, for example, where, you know, historically player place terrain has been a part of the strategy involved in playing the game. And, you know, you've got like six pieces of terrain or seven pieces of terrain and you putting it back and forth and making sure that you sort of like try and gain an advantage on your opponent is part of the whole process of the like getting the game going. So, you know. I think there's some value to it. I think it's just easy not to have that. It's just, you know, you have the terrain, you have it set up, you've got like set keywords, and as an organizer and as a player, it's just less brain power and you can just get down to your table. The terrain's already set up, you know what the mission is, you just put your objectives down and you go, right? And I think there's value in that as well. Okay. Yeah. All right, patron Brian wants to know some fluff-driven rules like uh, vengeance for sanguinians, relic of lost Cadia, death of the false emperor, etc., etc. Alternate between utterly useless and potentially backbreaking. Do these rules have a place in competitive 40k, and do they even have any influence on the meta? Would you like to see more or less of them? I'm, if I'm being honest, I think those rules are fine and interesting the problem is that the access to them is very uneven um you know if you if you look at your magic of the gathering um they have traditionally given color hosers to each color uh, i know it's not something they do as much anymore but uh, certainly their their earlier design strategy was like everyone gets opposed color hosers you don't see that in 40k it's like oh yeah uh we're gonna we're gonna give this faction a huge bonus against this other faction because then the lore they're designed to fight them um but the other faction isn't going to get anything to compensate so you get these weird things like eldar are super good against slanesh but slanesh is not particularly good against eldar which 
feels very weird and half designed. I think they either need to give everyone stuff like that or they need to avoid giving that sort of thing out. I think I think uh GW I think it has a lot of potential. It has a high ceiling. Um I think there is a place in competitive 40k for rules like that. Although I don't think GW is doing them correctly. I don't think they're capitalizing on the full potential of those kinds of lists. Like Sean said, um, obviously there, there's irregularities. Um, it's not in a vacuum balanced, uh, you know, against each other uh, with those specific style of rules. So I think what I'd like to see GW do is in the future, move those rules towards more universal things that affect multiple factions, but are still very niche. Think like a stratagem that gives Tau the ability to hurt a Psyker better, right? Something like plus one to hit against Psyker unit. Something like that. And you can even make it sept-specific if you want to be super fancy. Or something like... like I actually really like Death to the False Emperor for Chaos Space Marines. Uh, it really it really gives them a niche of, like, we're actually pretty good at killing Imperium and killing Space Marines. Like, you know, like, that's that's our thing. And that's okay because Space Marines are a large part of the meta. So well, I think it's... Oh, go ahead. But, I mean, to that point, Death of the False Emperor used to only work on Space Marines. Now it works on all Imperial units. That's fine. Like, that's a rule that is useful and exists. Um, it, it, it was bad when it was like, oh, there's one faction in the game that it works against, and we just sort of have a, a bonus here, but it never matters. Yeah, but but rules like word like word bearers and ultramarines getting like rerolls to hit against each other, yeah. th those can just go. They, they can get put in crusade rules with yes. the rest of the weird yeah. factions. Please, please move stuff. that over to the narrative side of the game. <laughs> uh, yeah, some some of them are. Um, hey, vengeance for Katie is amazing. Okay, I don't know what. You're yeah, a little about. too amazing, actually. <laughs> vengeance for Katie is a is a pretty good relic, but it's it's I wouldn't call it like a fluff driven relic. Well, no, it is. It's, uh, it's chaos. It's it's, it's in the same realm as stratagem. the not the red. Wait, you're yeah. thinking relic not of the... lost Cadia. I'm God, thinking God. yes, vengeance of Cadia. That's the one with the rerolls. Re uh, the aura. It's like guide and doom yep. on a on furry unit against the chaos unit, which is amazing. That thing is so yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's like the new blood angel one for death uh, against um, uh, dark black legion. It's yeah. also Cadian specific, right? Nope. So no, oh well, no, vengeance for Cadia can be used for by Ever anybody <laughs> for no good reason. Well, it maybe a powerful ability like that could probably be limited to Cadians no. no. only. No, it's so good. <laughs> Come on, you have, you have you have five Slanesh <laughs> keepers of secrets running at you. You have vengeance for Cadia. Well, one thing I would like to see also is GW move towards rules that give you bonuses against specific parts of your faction, um, your opponent's uh, army. So uh, I explained that horribly. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, how about a stratagem that gives you a bonus when shooting at a unit that isn't in your opponent's uh, warlord's detachment? Thus, like, like hurting soup armies. Huh. Um, something like that. Just I feel like the stratagem and the whole rules design space there is massive, and I feel like GW still isn't really scratching the surface. Um, they're occasionally coming out with rules that are kind of going against the mold and break that rule, um, but I think they could do it more, right? Yeah, there's definitely a lot they can do there. 
I think they need to be a little conservative about that because that's the sort of thing that can get confusing. I don't want to remember which unit of tactical marines is in the warlord detachment and which one is in the patrol detachment um, because that's just annoying. But there certainly is space to do a lot more stuff playing with the, like, game aspects of the game, where it's like, oh, this unit gets a bonus against elites. Okay, that's cool. That's a neat thing. Uh, you know, they have a little bit of that with, with Death Watch right now, but it's something they could certainly do more with, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, okay, Patron Nathan uh, has three questions, but you know what? They're all not bad, so we're going to ask them all. The first one is, is Chicago-style pizza just a casserole in disguise? No. Uh, no, it's a terrible sandwich. It's <laughs> it's a one-of-the has... oversized taco. <laughs> it's it's like a really, really good cake. That's, anyways. Ch- uh, honestly, though, I think the real answer is, is it depends on who makes it. Because I've had some Chicago-style pizza that is basically just a casserole or lasagna. But I have other <laughs> Chicago-style pizza that you can actually eat with your hands and have it be all right. Anyways, uh, next question. Should we start moving beyond the preset keyword of terrain for ruins, woods, etc., and use custom tag terrain instead for balancing terrain layouts? I like that idea. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a good plan. Like, customizing the keywords of terrain pieces to reflect what the physical piece of terrain looks like uh, is good. Like, maybe some ruins aren't obscuring. That's fine. Like, you can do that. Um, maybe some of them are, are dangerous to move through or, you know, are dense instead of obscuring or whatever other thing you pick. Um, I, I think having some flexibility and, like, being willing to do that is very beneficial to the game. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then finally, what are our thoughts on the center having dense terrain? Is that good or not? I don't think the center should have dense terrain, personally. Like, minus um, one hit terrain? I, I think you should have some that do and some that don't. And I think it should really depend on the mission that you're playing, personally. Yeah. Yeah. The, the center should not be an unshootable, like, black ball mass. Um, it's fine to have, like... I think that obscuring terrain should be more centrally located, but not, like completely cutting off the center i think the center should be an arena mm. with no terrain and all how, the objectives pablo how many men would enter and as a result of that how many men do you think would be allowed to leave i would say one man enters uh-huh. one xenos leaves interesting interesting well the dark eldar oh. definitely had something to do with that <laughs> <laughs> But but joking aside, I, I I like the idea of having the center surrounded by ruins, uh, feeling uh, creating a kind of an arena feel, uh, where the center isn't as easily accessible from units on the outside, um, but is still you know like units can still go in there and like, infantry specifically can go in there and duke it out for board space. Um, all right, uh, have any of the hosts actually played the force with the breachable trait? So this is what we talked about with the not being able to move trees out of the way and stuff. I have not. I didn't even know that was a real they, trait. They have the... Yeah. Yeah. Breachable is a trait. Um, but uh, usually that's 
that's what is like people just assume that that's how things were played. So I, I think we've said it before. Just talk to your opponents before you do anything, please. Okay. Yeah. Uh, patron Dan um, with the red versus green chilies question again. So this time instead of the salsa, red versus green salsa, red versus green chilies. I actually think green, green chilies in salsas like serrano peppers, jalapenos, uh, those those are pretty good. The you know those are good bases for different salsas. Um, the red ones tend to be a little flashier and a little more acidic and you know spicier, but um, I feel like they add less flavor. I like salsa verde, like with red, like green chilies in there. That's good stuff. All right. Yeah. There you go. Uh, should tables have asymmetrical terrain? We already talked about. And then finally, should the defender get to choose sides or have an advantage? So should being the defender get to give you some sort of advantage at all uh, or not? Um, if um, there was a bonus to like the role, kind of like back in the day where it's like, hey, if you pick sides, you went second, right? So you pick the better side, but then, you know, knew you were going second so you kind of had to hide more i think if there's some sort of mechanic that's built back into the game then yes yeah i think that that's where i would stand as well yeah i don't know it, it that's always a hard one right because i didn't like the plus one to go first um deal at all and that's a tough one to balance <clears throat> uh patron shay wants to know what are the most host what are the host's thoughts of tables utilizing more verticality with terrain as in tears of- i love that uh, i want i like Honestly, like I feel like terrain should have more like bridges and mm. just a little more dimensional, three D dimensions. It is. I'll tell you right now from experience that is a very tricky. As soon as you start playing with the three dimensions, it's awesome and really fun, but it gets really tricky to make sure that both players are having like a good time. Like it's it is yeah. it is a tricky like balancing act. And and I would also say that is great fun in Necromunda. I don't like it in 40k very much, in part because only infantry get to play that game. So ah, if you're not playing infantry, you are not allowed to take part in that aspect of things. Or stuff that flies, um, right? Like if I have a I have an well, asteroid yeah. table that has like asteroids that go up and down like that. At that point, we're starting to look at going up and going down. Like either you fly and you can fly right on top and ignore vertical distances, or you physically have to traverse like the entire distance up and down places and whatnot. Yeah, and it makes the game very unplay especially if five turns is like the limit of gameplay it doesn't really yeah. it's not really conducive to like quick gameplay that's why i actually really like hills uh hills providing like raised platforms that vehicles and monsters can get on mm-hmm. uh, and hide behind um it, while also adding that kind of like extra little dimension i've always really liked hills um i think that hills are a very underrated uh part of the terrain that we should probably use more yeah, I'm a I'm a fan of a good hill. Yeah, me too. Um, okay. Uh, finally, last question: Do the guests think that window terrain is a good is good compared to solid terrain? I find it just defeats the purpose of obscuring, leaves you with a tiny area behind the road. Blah blah blah. So, uh, do you think that do the guests think that window terrain is good compared to solid terrain? I think in ninth edition, it's fine to have windows and terrain. It's not a big problem. Not a super problem. However, having terrain that 
does completely block line of sight will then make units like Magnus, Mortarion, you know, larger knights, things like that, aircraft that you can hide behind big non-walled pieces of terrain. It be it makes the meta more diverse. I don't think it's All necessary. Right. That is it for today's episode. Uh, we're going to cut it off here, but we're going to open the floor to patrons to ask us more questions live that we answer. Um, but if you liked hearing from Skari and Sean, Skari, where can they find you? You can find me sitting in my chair most times. Um, I do a live stream every Tuesday through Friday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Twitch at twitch.tv slash where we sit and we paint things and we hobby for a couple hours every single day. We listen to music and hang out and chill. So you're very welcome to come and join, grab a paintbrush, and hashtag just put paint on it. Ooh. I don't understand. Then... That has no mechanical benefit at all. Why would I do that? <laughs> then Sean, if you want to hear more hot takes from Sean like that, Sean, where can they find you? Uh, we're doing in the finest hour still. Uh, been been a few hiccups recently because uh, the situation is still pretty complicated for those of us who are dealing with the pandemic. But uh, we're still putting out episodes, and you can find us on Facebook or on Patreon, uh, and you can email us as well. Right on. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. You are all the best listeners in the world, and as always, have a good one.